0: I just wanted to emphasize one of the announcements that's on your uh, bulletin this morning, and that is on uh, Wednesday evenings, which particularly fits with our subject this morning. Uh, We're going through these videos with uh, Wayne Grudem on 20 Transforming Truths. This one's on who is Christ, which after this morning, hopefully will be more interesting. We'll see. One other thing also is that coming up on October 12th, which is a week from Tuesday, Life Options, we have our annual advancement event, which we bring in a special speaker talking about uh, the whole full-life movement. And also it's a fundraiser. But uh, it's going to be at Neighborhood Church at, starting at 6, program at 7, next Tuesday the 12th, or week from Tuesday on the 12th. i want to let you know it's, it's coming. Um, and you're all welcome to come. Well, I think continue on in the uh, in the book of Colossians. In Matthew sixteen thirteen, Jesus is asking a key question to his disciples. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" Now, eventually, Peter answered, "You know that you are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." Although six verses later. Jesus tells Peter that he's actually Satan's mouthpiece, be that as it may, how would people answer that question today, given our evolved status over Peter himself? Here's some examples. And I picked the response. I'm going to look at each one of these. And I kind of gleaned a response from their websites. How about a secular Christian? How would a secular Christian answer the question, Who do people say that Jesus is? Can you legitimately claim to be a Jesus follower if you're not a Christian? Secular is key to the answer. Obviously, I cannot claim the label as a Christian would, nor am I trying. I'm declaring myself to be a secular Jesus follower, which is to say a secular Jesus follower is pursuing the aspects of Jesus that do not involve his religious utterances and behaviors or claims about his divine status. What's left? Huh? Um, how about a member of the Watchtower Society? Jehovah's Witnesses by name. Jesus is very precious to Jehovah. Why? Because God created him before everything and everyone else. So Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15. Jesus is also precious to Jehovah because he is the only one Jehovah created directly. How about our friends from Salt Lake City? We believe that Jesus was begotten of the Father during the pre-existence, our existence before the creation of the earth, as were you and me. He was the first begotten of all the children of the Father. He is and was the most faithful, valiant, and beloved of all God's children. He is the Father's beloved Son. That would be how they would answer How about a liberal theology professor? I picked one of the most liberal ones I could find. Jesus and his first followers were hippies in a world of Augustine yuppies. (laughs) Jesus had a social program which sought to rebuild a society upwards from its grassroots, but on principles of religious and economic egalitarianism, made concrete in the combination of free healing and common eating, which negated the like in at once the hierarchical and patronal normalties of Jewish religion and Roman power. Did you get that? You went up on me. Anyway. How about a Jesus-only Pentecostal? There's only one God, and there are no distinct persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the one God who sometimes manifests himself as the Father or the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Father, and Jesus is the Spirit. There is one God who reveals himself in different modes. Which, didn't catch that as an ancient heresy. Well, how about conservative Christians, maybe like someone you know? Jesus is how we get right with God, and is the means that we have to use in order to gain access to heaven. His life, death, and resurrection, how he made it possible for me to live a productive, healthy, and happy life, until that time comes. He's my eternal fire insurance policy. But how does the Apostle Paul identify Jesus? Just a bit differently. And I, I used this before uh, in worship. I took verses 15 through 20 of Colossians chapter 1 and I made them in a direct address rather than talking about third person he. So I'd like for us to read this together. Jesus You are the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By you, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through you and for you. You are before all things, and in you all things hold together. You are the head of the body, the church. You are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that you yourself might come to have first place in everything. In you all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through you God will reconcile all things to yourself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of your cross. Let's pray. Father, this is one of the, to me, one of the most amazing paragraphs in Scripture. It's one of my favorites, and I hope I can do it justice this morning, and I ask for your help in doing that, and for each of us to be able to glean from this the important things that we need for our life. Oh, Jesus, we want to exalt you this morning. We want to lift you up. We want, as we have been singing already, we want to be able to exalt you and lift you up in our hearts on a continuing basis as well that we might just recognize, Father, who you are, who Jesus is, and how he is so complete in everything that we could ever possibly need, how you've made provision through Jesus for everything, in the past and the present and on into the future forever. If we could just get this firmly implanted in our lives, Father, it would change our behavior forever. So may that be true this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already seen in uh, in this letter so far, even though we're only in the first chapter, Paul is very concerned that these Christians in Colossae, a city he never visited, would grow strong. And the pressures against their faith are already present. That's one of the reasons why he's writing this letter. But they need to grow up. They need to become vigorous. They need to be compassionate Christians with lives who are centered on Jesus Christ alone. So Paul is combating a teaching in Colossae that questions whether Christ is sufficient. It doesn't deny his lordship. It simply says, you started well with Christ, but we can take you deeper into the faith with deeper knowledge and deeper experience of God's power if you follow certain teachings and rituals that Epaphras didn't know about when he brought you the gospel. So in his greeting, his very salutation of this letter, he undercuts that teaching. And then in verses 3 through 8, he offers thanksgiving for what God is already doing in the lives of the people in Colossae. He repudiates the idea that there is something else other than Christ that the Colossians need. And then he continues with a particular prayer aimed at the Colossians for them to know God's will and to live in accordance with that will because that's how you actually please their Lord. He stresses that their true identity is in Christ. So they must live out that relationship without cluttering it with additional rituals and dietary restrictions and strange practices that involve angels that we're going to see later. If the Colossians, of course, and we, would allow God's truth about Jesus to permeate our minds and our lives, it would really change how we respond to the world around us. Remember, when we looked at the book of Philippians, Marty made the point that the book is divided kind of in half. There's the orthodoxy portion, correct belief, correct understanding, followed by the orthopraxy section, the correct practices based on that, the flow out of that. This book is set up the same way. Four chapters, the first two chapters deal with orthodoxy, correct belief, and then correct practice that flows out of that is in chapters three and four. Now those quotes that I gave you (laughs) as we started this morning... Some Christians seem to treat Jesus as the British treat their queen. They treat her with respect and reverence most of the time and pay lip service, but they really don't want her to be their absolute ruler. They fought at least two civil wars in England over that issue. Paul is telling us that King Jesus is not like that. Our text tells us to face the fact of who Jesus is. To put it simply, he's in charge of the universe. Now, many scholars believe that this magnificent description we're going to see of Christ found in these verses represents an early Christian hymn that Paul paraphrases, Paul adopts. Now, whether that's true or maybe Paul wrote it himself, it is a hymn that is composed of two stanzas. It kind of looks like to me like a New Testament psalm when you lay it out. And the first stanza concerns Jesus as the Lord of creation. That is, the universe and all the forces that work within it. The second speaks of Jesus as Lord of the new creation, the new humanity. Now, we've lost the tune for this hymn, but we still have the lyrics. And they focus on our Lord's complete supremacy over creation and over redemption. The two major roles that Jesus plays in God's plan. He's the creator and he's the redeemer. First of all, looking at the first verses which deal with the fact that Jesus is the creator. He's the Lord of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if you notice, kind of emphasize the fact that the word all is a thread that kind of binds these verses together. It shows up five times just in these first three verses. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. In him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, or consist. Let's begin looking at what does he mean by Jesus being the firstborn of all creation? I mean, to our year, you know, 2,000 years later, that's not like he was born first or maybe created first. But verse 16 doesn't give us an out that way. People who quote Colossians 1.15 as being, considering Jesus being a created being, never look at verse 16. Jesus was not born or created first because he was not created. All things were created by him which means he himself was not created unless he created himself, which is impossible unless you believe in evolution. So while the term firstborn means being born first to us, it has a much richer and deeper meaning in Scripture. Throughout the Bible, firstborn has the meaning of most significant or most prized, or as we will see it in verse 18, preeminent. Firstborn from the dead. Then everything he might be preeminent. So firstborn with Jesus means being exalted above all things. He is the end-time Adam who reflects the ruling position that Adam and his flawed human successors should have held. In Psalm 89, 27, King David is portrayed as the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now the youngest son of Jesse somehow became the firstborn to God. And as Israel's king and Messiah, Jesus sits on David's throne as the ultimate firstborn, as king of kings and lord of lords. I think this psalm is what Paul had in mind when he uses this. But the fact Jesus is being firstborn really isn't totally cut loose from an important sense of, of firstness, not just in preeminence, but also in time, actually before time. Verse 17 sums up verses 15 and 16 by saying, He is before all things. Now surely as God, uncreated, always existing, and as the Nicene Creed says, begotten, not made, Christ is before all things, and therefore he is the ultimate firstborn in time as well as in position. Let's circle back to verse 15 and see how the hymn starts again. It starts with, he is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Once upon a time, a little boy was drawing pictures on the floor as his mother was in the kitchen. She said to him, what are you drawing? And He said, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And she says, no, no no one knows. No one even knows what God looks like. He says, they will when I get through. (laughs) Now, there's some truth in that story when it's applied to Jesus. It's as though the baby lying in the manger in Bethlehem is a picture that's being drawn for us. It would be proper to say that that baby, when he finishes his life work, men will know what God looks like. That's what Jesus did. Today, when you come to Jesus, you discover that in a remarkable way you have also come into the presence of God himself. You end up knowing God personally and intimately. Hebrews 1.3 puts it this way, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, we're first introduced to the concept of the image of God at creation. Genesis 1.27 says that, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, how might we apply that concept to Jesus then? Well, it would probably help if we took the word, if we added the word invisible. We are made in the image of the invisible God, which I find to be illuminating. Emphasizing God's visibility points to what the image is. It's visible. And visibility is a property of something that's been created. God is is, is uncreated and therefore is invisible to his creatures. But the world he created is visible. So visibility is derived, it's not original. And Jesus here is said to be the visible image of the invisible God. So what then does that mean for Jesus, as Lord over all creation, that all things are in him, through him, and for him? In verse 15, not only is his eternal deity in view, but also his incarnation as a human, his becoming flesh. The eternal visible Son became visible by becoming man. John 1 puts it this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then on verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So before God created the world, he designed it for he himself to enter in as a creature in the person of his Son. Man is the creature designed by God to be like who his Son would be when his Son comes into the world he created God created mankind the way he did because that is what he would look like when he comes into the world as Jesus. When Jesus came to earth, he was not a copy of humans, but humans are a copy of him as God intended before creation began. That means that all of creation images him and he makes us his image so we can share it. Adam was created in the image of God to reflect Jesus as the image of the invisible God and not the other way around. It's Jesus-centered, not man-centered. Humanity may have been created last on the sixth day, but God did all his creating from day one with the intent of setting up the world for mankind. Not just man in general, but his Son as the ultimate man who would one day enter this world as firstborn, as supreme over all creation. So this world exists as it does today and is what it is and has the history that it has through the agency of his son in creation. And for his son to honor, glorify, and bow before his supreme worth and majesty, all creation is in Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. There's not anything in this world and in your life that does not relate to Jesus. Often we may, we may not see how, but the problem is not with his being, but with our seeing. Which explains the verse, the list of pairs that he gives in verse 16. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all these contrasts, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He's trying to give us the impression that Jesus is truly Lord of all, even Lord over Satan and his demonic powers. Because if someone were to object to this kind of exhaustive vision of of Christ's supremacy over creation, one of the first things he might question is, what about the angels in the spirit world? Even better, what about Satan and the demons? He created them too? We might suspect that if there were any part of reality that that wasn't in, through, and for Jesus, it would be spirits who rebelled against God. But the answer is no, not even them. Whatever question you might have, whatever doubts you might have about the utterly extensive supremacy, and sovereignty of Christ, Paul's hymn says, yes, and whatever you can think of, and that too. As Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, has said, there's not a square inch in all the universe of which the risen Christ does not say, mine. There is not one stray molecule in the universe, or else his whole plan could come unraveled. Christ is sovereign over all. And one last all is given to us at the end of verse 17. He says, in him all things hold together. He's superglue. And this flows from the supremacy and the centrality and preeminence of Christ in all creation. But it's distinct, and it's worth making clear. Not only was Jesus the agent and the goal of all creation, but he holds things together. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power in Hebrews 1. So, not only is his involvement in creation exhaustive, but it continues every moment of every day. He didn't just wind up the watch after he made it and just walk away. He holds the world, he holds all history and our lives in his hands. And he he actively keeps them ticking every millisecond, down to your next heartbeat. And so, we we stand in awe of the utter lordship of Jesus over reality even over Satan and demons. Not only is Jesus presently Lord, but in him and through him and for him was everything created. And he holds it together every moment. And he is the image of God in the world. All reality was set up for the entrance of God into this world in his creation in the person of his son. And for his son to be the culmination and the heir of all things. And that's the first point, that's the first stanza. All the universe is created for the incarnation and for the lordship of Christ. Now for the second stanza. What do he achieves when he enters in. Jesus is the redeemer. The agent of all salvation. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So as impressive as it is for Christ to be Lord over all that exists in such utterly, you know, exhaustive, unrestricted terms, it's even more impressive that he is Lord of the world to come. I mean, he is firstborn, he's preeminent, not only in the first creation, but also in the ultimate creation. In verse 18, the new heavens and the new earth as head of the body of the redeemed people for which the new world is designed. The first world was designed for his entrance. The new world is designed for his endless reign as supreme over all and head of his body, called the church. So as great a glory as it is, for Christ to be the very image of God in him, in whom, through whom, and for whom, all things exist, his role in relation to the church is even more significant. As Paul says in his companion letter in Ephesians, it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And the church is the place, the church is the people, among whom God's glory and praise reach their pinnacle. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. In the church and in Christ Jesus. So we're part of this new humanity that God's bringing forth upon this earth. A humanity that is bought with a price. Remember, You are not your own. You are bought with a price. And he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. Which brings to mind what appears to be a very simple parable our Lord told in Matthew chapter 13. There he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now that parable has often been interpreted to mean that Jesus is the pearl of great price. And then when we see what a valuable person he is, we will sell all we have and buy him. But that's entirely contrary to every other teaching of scripture. We can't purchase God. We can't purchase our salvation in any sense. We have nothing to offer. No, this is talking about Jesus as the merchant, the one who is seeking, the one who is looking for a fine pearl. And he finds one, and it's the church. For it, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it, the church. Now a pearl, if you think about it, is the only precious gem that's made by an animal. I mean, a pearl starts out as an irritated oyster. A grain of sand gets stuck in the shell, within the shell of the oyster. And to the oyster, of course, that probably feels like crackers and bedwood to us. So the oyster sets about getting rid of the irritation. And the way he does that is to cover that irritating grain of sand with a beautiful, what's called nacre, or mother of pearl, that hardens into a lustrous and gorgeous pearl. When you think about it, that's how the church was born. It emerges from the wounded side of Jesus. It is the irritation that we represent by our sinful lives that put him to death. And he covers it over and he heals it, making it into a beautiful pearl of great value. That's the church. That's what Paul's describing here. Jesus himself, he says, is the beginning of the church. And he's its head. Which means he is the leader and the provider and the protector for the church. And that he has a body of people means he is not alone in the new age. A people born with rebellious hearts that he transformed will be with him. Well, how does that happen? Well, the heart of this second part of the hymn, the second stanza, is that Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. There's a massive disruption between stanza one and stanza two, and it's called sin. The horror of human history is that the creature made in God's very own image and and called very good by the God who created him rebelled against the God who created him. We made war on the very one that we were supposed to live to display. We did the most irrational, pathetic evil that we could. We distrusted the one who was infinitely trustworthy and chose to go our own way towards destruction. This is why we live today in a world of war and chaos and conflict and disaster and disease. So in the fullness of time, when the eternal Son of God finally took up the human flesh and blood designed for him from before the creation of the world, and entered into the world as the one in whom and through whom and for whom the world exists, his mission was to make peace. Not by killing the enemies of his father, by giving up his own life to atone for a chosen people even though they had sinned against his infinitely worthy father. In grace, he shed his own blood. That means he didn't die of natural causes. This is a sacrifice. He shed his own blood in place of his people perishing eternally as God's justice required. So now, not only is all created reality in, through, and for Jesus But all redemption, all salvation is in him, through him, and for him. But given how we look at this expansive text, with all being the thread that ties it together, you might reasonably ask, well, if Jesus is the agent of all redemption, that means all people are saved, right? Has he or will he reconcile all things to himself, such that all people, all spirits for that matter, whether on earth or in the heavens, eventually have peace with him? and are saved eternally? That's not what Paul means. He does not mean by this that all people are saved and brought into Jesus' family. You can see that later on when we get to chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 of Colossians, where Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So God's wrath is coming on those who don't put their trust in Jesus. We can pick this up the same idea in Romans chapter 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And boy, does it ever. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now those who reject Jesus will not be included in the redeemed realm, but cast into outer darkness. You can see that in Matthew chapter 25. All humans have access to Christ's peacemaking through the gospel but as those who embrace his saving work who are going to live with him as his fully redeemed and in a renewed world, while those who reject him are cast out beyond the realm of peace. And what makes a difference? Our response to the gospel. Are you in Adam, or are you in Christ, the second Adam? Your eternity hangs on the answer, as is everybody else in the world. not only is he the lord of all creation and also the agent of salvation he he's also the source and focus of our true satisfaction we see this in verses 19 and 20 one phrase there is first to reconcile himself to himself to reconcile means remove the barrier and restore the relationship and the enjoyment of the person is the goal so when jesus makes peace by the sacrifice of himself He doesn't restore to us the creation to enjoy as as our final satisfaction. He reconciles us to himself, to each other, to the creation. But ultimately to him, to reconcile us to him. He's the final focus. Not anything it's made. Not humans. Not creation. Him. He's the focus. The other phrase is all the fullness. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God which has made God supremely happy and infinitely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity from all eternity, that fullness, he says, is in Jesus. And through him, we can taste the very fullness of God as our final satisfaction. Nothing's more satisfying. All the fullness of God is in Jesus, not just for the sake of redemption, but also for our eternal satisfaction with him and in him and for him. There is no delight, there is no goodness, no mercy in God that we have to bypass Christ to access. All the fullness, all the joy, all of God is there in him. So if you were to look, turn over to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, you'd see the Apostle Paul say for, say, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And there, once again, the word fullness is stressing that Christ is fully God. Paul is talking about the honor and the glory and the reward that's due to Christ alone because he has fulfilled all the responsibilities. All the responsibilities of his office as Savior and as our high priest. Paul is speaking of that fullness of God that he's been pleased to give to his son because he is pleased beyond measure with the perfection of the Savior's obedience and his willing sacrifice. And that fullness is all found in him that fullness that belongs to him alone. Remember back in Philippians chapter 2, where he said, he has given that name which is above every name because he humbled himself and, gave, and because he took on the form of a servant and because he died the death on a cross. And because he was raised again, he was exalted above every other name. So because he has fulfilled everything, he told the Father he would do in our behalf. And that's so important, Paul tells us, for this reason. Because we're told that in him now, because of that, we are more than conquerors. We are hyper-conquerors, literally. Super-conquerors. As he is hyper-exalted to the fullness of the Father because of the Father's pleasure in his obedience, we are exalted with him. Remember, we are in Christ in the heavenly places. It's on the book of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you want the fullness? You've got the fullness in Christ. In Christ. You don't have to look somewhere else. If you're in Christ, you're going to reign with him in glory. You'll be hyper-exalted. You're going to be hyper conquerors. For in him all the fullness dwells by the Father's good pleasure. There is nothing of glory and honor and blessing that you're going to find outside of Christ. And so Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, that God's people would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, you may be ful- filled with all the fullness of God. If you can imagine how full that is. All the fullness of God in this man, Jesus. Full humanity and fullness of deity. And we might marvel at his, at his, you know, his bigness and his, and his might and his glory, and, and we kind of melt at the thought of his, his grace and his mercy. But that all comes together to one spectacular person all the fullness of God in this God man, whom we will see one day face to face and more fully know and enjoy without obstruction throughout eternity and never plumb the depths of who he is and how glorious he is. So Jesus is the one who alone possesses the resurrection life that he gives to each one of us. Which is what John is saying in his first letter here of in First John chapter 5, verse 11. This is a testimony. God has given us eternal life, deathless life, resurrection life, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has a life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So a man may be moral, he might be a nice person, but does not yet possess the life of eternity, the resurrection life of Jesus, because that life comes from Jesus alone. So it's a clear biblical fact that Christians who have received Christ and been born into this new creation have that life. That's the reason that we can no longer excuse ourselves for wrong behavior by saying, well, I'm only human. Well, it's true, you are human in your body, in the flesh, and that's why you get tempted. But because you also have a new life, it means you don't have to yield to that temptation. There is now a new power within. And we're already seeing from these verses What that power entails. It's not trivial power. Because when you become a Christian, you have a whole new source of power that the world knows nothing about and will never understand. That's why He expects us to live at a different, a higher level. And you can. And you can't excuse yourself by saying, Well, I'm only human. That's why temptations come, but God has given us the ability to say no to those temptations and say, Yes. To the power of Christ. You're not going to feel powerful in the middle of that. He not expects us to. But we have the power to say no. Something we never had outside of Christ. And that's what the new creation is all about. Who are you going to yield to? Because our Lord is the master of the old creation, that old material universe around us, and also the master of a whole new humanity that's now coming into being. Paul goes on to say that he's both the firstborn of the old and firstborn of the new in order that he might have the supremacy. There is nothing left out of his control. Brothers and sisters, Jesus holds it all together. He is Lord of heaven, He's Lord of earth, the first creation and the new creation, the present and the future, all of history and the smallest detail of your life. In him is full, undiminished divinity and true, uncompromised humanity. He is a lion-like lamb and a lamb-like lion. He is Lord of all space and time, Savior of his chosen people, and the supreme treasure who corresponds perfectly with our personal weariness and our longing for greatness. He is all we will ever need. Let's pray. Father, this is still an amazing section of Scripture to me to understand even a little bit about how glorious Jesus is and how he is all that we ever need. He is all that the world ever needs. It wants me to redouble my efforts in seeing other, have other people come to know Jesus as well. I thank you that through Jesus we have victory over temptation. There's no temptation that's taken us, but which is common to man, but you have provided the way of escape, and it's through Jesus. Father, help us to see how we can how to relate all of our life, all of our details, every part of it, to Jesus and what He wants for us. And the fact that not only are we blessed in this life, where there's suffering and disease and death, we're going to be with Him for eternity, face to face, full, unvarnished, full deity that we're able to will be able to experience. Thank you, Father, for that hope that we have, that certainty we have because Jesus has gone on before, and he's calling us there. Thank you for going with us and helping us to put this into practice. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.